Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Richie Rosita, also known as Richard Edmund Vargas, an artist, activist, and entrepreneur. Richie was formerly incarcerated and his experiences were featured in the CNN documentary, The Feminist on Cell Block Y. In the film, Richie is depicted using the texts of black feminist bell hooks to lead group lessons on patriarchy and toxic masculinity. Richie's work came out of a collaboration with Charles Berry, which started in 2013 to educate other incarcerated men and launched in February 2014 under the name Success Stories. We speak to Richie today about his experiences developing the curriculum, its success, and the Success Stories nonprofit that he founded, which has secured partial funding from the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation to support this work towards establishing a national presence in reducing recidivism. Welcome, Richie. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Hi, thank you for having me. Let's start with your background. Not much has been written about that. Where did you grow up and what kind of family environment did you have? I grew up in Los Angeles, California, um, in a working class part of Los Angeles called the San Fernando Valley. I grew up with both my mom and dad in the home. My dad being religious, conservative, black Christian from the projects, and my mom being a liberal Jewish white woman from New York um, and who moved to the suburbs. And my dad worked two jobs for most of my life. Um, so he was gone from about 3 a.m. to about 5 or 6, sometimes 8 p.m., working to support us. And my mom usually worked as well as a secretary. How did you feel with your parents having to balance that kind of work schedule? I think I grew up kind of disconnected from my dad based on him working so much. And as much as we have a great relationship now, I think it led to like some estrangement in our relationship um, between all of the working and me kind of developing a, a sense of self that was very different than what he wanted from his sons, um, which was very traditional play sports, get good grades, kind of man's man kind of uh, expectations for us and me turning out to actually be very more into art and music and fashion and um, things like that. Yeah. So I feel like that him working so much definitely contributed to that. And then because of his Christian beliefs and, and beliefs in the physical punishment of children to maintain order um, in the household, I, you know, he was, he was the one who was the disciplinarian and would often do that physically. And I kind of just related to him as, you know, the guy who comes around just to spank us or to get the belt out rather than as like somebody who uh, I had like a deep love relationship with. And what role did your mother play in those situations? You referenced her as a liberal Jewish white woman. Um, I can't imagine that she would take a passive role in those situations. Well, I, I, for a long time, at least from my childhood perspective, it felt like she did. 
because even though I know she disagreed with it and that's not how she was raised, she still allowed it to happen. I know when I was really young, I know this now that she, the, the boundary that she held was not to hit us with anything that extended from the hand. And that boundary was respected for a little bit, but me and my two brothers, you know, we all passed six feet when we were 10, 11 years old. So we were just big kids. And, uh, so my dad, you know, moved to, moved over to a bell and I, and my mom allowed that for a while. And then eventually she, um, my mom is, was very passive in my memory of her in my childhood and did very much, uh, play out, you know, her roles in patriarchy, even though she didn't want to, she cooked, even though she hated cooking. Um, even if my dad got home before her, she would get off work, pick us all up and then cook the food. And she she really wouldn't stand up to my dad. At least what I saw again as a child, she really wouldn't stand up to my dad. Um, he was kind of the decision maker of the house until I remember the last time he ever hit me. He was hitting me with the belt and my mom came in and she told him no more. And he said, we're done here. And she she thought he meant they were done here, like he wasn't going to speak to her. And she was like, no more. And she actually stepped in between him and I. And then he said, we, and pointed to me and him and said, are done here. Like he was talking to me and telling me to leave. So I left. And that was the only time I seen my mom really stand up and, and call an end to that. And it was the end of it. I was never, that never happened again after that. So just to clarify, how old were you? I was pretty old at that point. I want to say I was 12. Am I understanding this correctly? Your father meant that he wanted you to leave the home? Or that no, he no, no. leave oh, the okay. room. Oh, leave the Maybe room. Leave. Okay, got it. He was basically like telling me, you know, that the 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 punishment was over and it's time to leave and whatever was gonna go down between him and my mom was none of my business. Like it's time to get out of here, child. Like leave the room. We're done here. I see. Um, so that was the last time he physically touched you in that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And did that physical um harm transfer to other people in the family? Yeah, that was the the way that my dad and and many Christians and black Christians in particular are um, taught to raise their family is through, you know, physical punishment. So, yeah, me me and and both of my brothers uh, were spanked or, you know, as we it's all kinds of like nicknames that people give it in in the culture, spanked, whooped, whatever. But it was, you know, um, spanked with the hand or hit with the belt. Um, but that's also how my cousins were raised. That's how my dad was raised. That's, that is the norm, um, on that side of my family. Honestly, I, uh, most of my friends were, had much more violent treatment from their parents than I did. I actually felt embarrassed that it wasn't as like, by the time I got to middle school, I felt like I would have to, I would want to like overstate it because my friends were getting like punched in the face like getting in full on fights, you know what I mean? Getting whooped with switches and extension cords. And I thought like, oh, like that's tough. Like they're, they're tough because they've been through that and I haven't been through that. So let me overstate the, what, what's taking place in my house, which when I look back on that now, it's actually very sad. At that point, when you were on the receiving end of that behavior, was there a, a consciousness that you had that, that this was not healthy? for you or what the impact it was on your emotional development and well-being? No, 
to me, it was like I said, it was normal. And it was, I had the lighter treatment of most of the people who I knew. Um, most of my friends were my age. So I never thought twice about it, but I know that it made me not like and not trust my dad. And so how did you end up learning about intersectional feminism? I heard that that was something that you had been exposed to prior to um, your incarceration. Yeah. So I, I kind of got to put it in, in context of a little bit of my background. I, when I started really embracing toxic masculinity myself was also when I was in middle school and, and, you know, I embraced it through a very racialized lens. I understood like in order to be a quote unquote real black man, I have to be like the black man who I saw on TV or, or like the older kids who I saw at school. Um, I had to be tough. I had to be emotionless. I had to do drugs. I had to be violent. Um, I had to be a gangster basically. So that's who I decided to be when I was 12. And, you know, I started using drugs when I was 12, selling drugs when I was 13. And when I was 14, I was put in a program that was started by my mentors, who are my mentors to this day, Mark Anthony Johnson and Patrice Cullors, um, where they were basically organizing youth to be community organizers. They were, they were teaching us how to be community organizers. The program was established at my high school, and they were going out of their way to kind of find at-risk kids to bring into this program. So I was in, you know, they put all of us who had D's and fails all on the same track of classes. And Patrice and Mark Anthony came in and started teaching us about mass incarceration and the school to prison pipeline. And it resonated with me. And I started going to the meetings and um, being really involved with that. And it was in those training programs, those community organizing training programs that I first learned about um, feminism I, I didn't know the term intersectional feminism at the time, but I was reading um, everyone who we were reading were, were black feminists at the time. Mark Anthony was taking me to men's groups where we were reading bell hooks. Um, we were reading Audre Lorde. We, we were, so those are the, the kinds of writers who, who I, though that was my introduction to feminism um, when I was 14. And, what what did you think when you f were first exposed to those books? It, it locked in for me. It wasn't. It was never hard for me to to believe or to get because I knew, you know, by the time I was fourteen I, and I meet Patrice and Mark Anthony, I knew that something was going on. I knew it was not right. By that point, I'm fourteen years old. By that point, I had been arrested three times, once for play fighting once for leaving school early and once for like scraping the dirt, there was so much dirt on my desk. I could scrape it off with my house key and it came off like a film. And, you know, I was 14. So I thought that was cool. So I was doing it and I got arrested for vandalism and accused of being a gang member. So I knew that racism was a thing. And this is, you know, 2006. So it was pre-Trump, pre-Obama. It was just in this time when people were like acting like racism was not a thing anymore. So it wasn't hard for me to believe that other systems of oppression were a thing. Like I never just was under the fantasy that there's only one kind of oppression in the world. I had recently, I was raised very Christian. I stopped being Christian when I was 14. When I came across the, the passage in the Bible that says that women shouldn't teach in the church. That was my first like, wait, what? I just came across it reading one day and I asked my dad about it. And he was basically like, ask God. Um, and I, I thought that was, that didn't make sense. And then when, um, 
you know, this around the time of the Iraq war, uh, the Iraq war was already a, a few years in, but when that one church was going to, when they were sending the bodies back from the Iraq war and there was that church who would go outside and protest and basically with the, with the signs that said like, God hates fags. And it would be like this saying that the Iraq war was like punishment for homosexuality in America. I remember my dad watching that on TV and me saying, what's wrong with them? And he said, you know, I, I disagree. I agree with what they're saying, but disagree with how they're saying it or something like that. And that's when I was like, Oh, we're done here with me and Christianity. I, I, I that's when I understood. I used to think like the world was bad and Christianity was like good. And then I realized that it was more complicated than that. So yeah, fast forward to when I'm hearing about, feminism, um, homophobia, like when I'm learning about these things explicitly in the organizing academy, it wasn't hard for me to believe at all. Were the the people who um, at school got you arrested for the play fighting and the leaving school early and the scraping the desk, um, the dirt from the desk, were they all white teachers? No, they were the cops. Los Angeles Unified School District has armed police officers on campus. So it wasn't the teachers. It was actual. I think the the scraping the dirt off the desk, it was a white teacher who was in the classroom who actually called the school cops to come and get me. But the other times um, when I was play fighting with that kid, we were like wrestling around. We, you know, this when I was 12. It was the cops who came and arrested both of us. We were, we were both black kids and, and they came and arrested us. Um, and then when I was 13 is when I left school early to get a haircut. And it was the cops who came came and got me that day, too. So there are cops that are on school, basically, as security guards? Yeah, there there's an entire police department in the county of Los Angeles called the Los Angeles School Police Department. Wow. They're their own agency, and they are armed, and they are on most campuses at all grade levels. The working class and poor areas, they're on 100% of the campuses, and they are armed. And they're still there, I'm guessing. Yeah, California is is uh, more neoliberal than I would than progressive, um, and our progressivism really tapers off when you start talking about criminal justice. We we city of Los Angeles spends literally half of its budget on police. We have the biggest prison system of any state. Uh, the prison budget in California is twelve billion dollars with a B. Yeah, we're not we're not progressive when it comes to those. When you were arrested, then um, when you served time at the correctional training facility, this was in Soledad, California. Was that the the time that the last time that you were arrested, or the first time? That was the last time. So I was when I was nineteen, I robbed two stores. Um, and was charged with seven robberies, two kidnappings, and assault with a deadly weapon, facing a, a 150 years to double life sentence. And I pled out to 10 years, um, and I went to California State Prison, and I spent seven years there, four and a half of which was at uh, the California Training Facility, or the Correctional Training Facility, um, where we started Success Stories and where CNN shot the documentary. I see. What was the experience like at that facility? It was very different. So by the time I got to CTF, I had been in prison for two years, a year in the L.A. County Jail, which is to this day the, the most terrible place I've ever been, extremely violent, 
extremely violent um, from from all directions, especially from the cops, sexual violence from the cops, just just terrible. That's why the sheriff of Los Angeles is in prison right now. We then got sent to a high security prison or in California, they're called level three prisons, but it's high security where there was no programs. It was lockdowns all the time. Very violent place. And then I went to after a year there, I went to a medium security prison, which was CTF. And the the culture there was very different. There is a very prominent culture of going to self-help groups. And I started going and the self-help groups that I was going to were not challenging patriarchy. Now, for me, having um, mentors like Patrice and Mark Anthony, having a wife like Taina, my the conversations around self-transformation that I've always had all the way back to when I was 14 were always centered around feminism and challenging patriarchy and understanding patriarchy as the source of male violence. So to go into these self-help groups where they were not only were they not challenging patriarchy, but they were upholding patriarchy was a shock to me. And, you know, I, I only tolerated it for a little bit before I was like, you know what, I'm I'm going to try to do some patriarchy workshops here, like the ones that I went through when I was a kid. And, you know, the first time I tried, I had to do them in other people's groups. And, you know, I got laughed out, laughed out of the room. And uh, that's when I was like, you know, what? I told Charles, we got to start our own group. And that's when we started Success Stories. Backing up a little bit, CTF, what made you eligible for the change from a higher security to a medium security prison? Was there some set of behaviors that you engaged in that that made you eligible for that? There's a whole system. They call it a point system in um, the California prison system that they use to determine if you're going to be maximum, high, medium, or minimum security. It's It's like a whole, you get... The younger you are, the more points you get. But if you're married, that takes points off. Or if you're in the military, it takes points off. What kind of conviction you have will determine how many points you get. So I ended up, when I got to prison um, from Los Angeles County Jail and they calculated my points, I was just in the range of a high security. I was I was low enough that they could have sent me to a medium security. But when I went to my, what they call a classification, where they make that decision, you know, the person who's running the meeting, who's like a, at the captain level, they said, hey, you know, this kid, he, he's only a couple points over uh, level two. Let's send him to a medium security. And my counselor, the person who's supposed to be representing me, says, you know, we he's a first timer, 20 year old black kid. He's going to start problems. Send him to a high security. And the person running the show said, OK. And that's what they did. And I, I didn't even know I was allowed to talk. So I just watched the whole thing go down and then they sent me to a high security prison in a place called Susanville, California, 10, 10 hours away from my home. Um, it's in the Northeast corner of California. And that's where I went for a year. And then because I was there for a year and didn't get in any trouble every year, your points go down as long as you don't get in trouble. So when my points go down, since I was so close to medium security anyway, I was now medium security eligible and I transferred out. So you and Charles, you said you started, you wanted to start your own group. What was the process like for getting approval and recruitment? <laughs> it was a long one. We spent about five months just researching curriculum, developing curriculum, and trying to figure out how do we even go about starting a group. So our first step was 
there was a group that already existed that we were both a part of that Charles cousin, his, his blood cousin, who had at that point been in prison for about 30 years, was in the leadership of that group. And this group was very well respected by the lieutenants and captains, and they had more time and space than they knew what to do with. So I had went to some of their meetings, their Saturday meetings, nobody came. Um, it would be like five people in there. And they didn't really, they really didn't even know what to do, how to program that time. So I said, hey, why don't you let us take over your Saturday and we'll just be considered a project of your group. And Charles Cousin was on board and he kind of helped us get the other leadership on board, all of whom are, are out now and, and good friends of mine. And yeah, they gave us the go ahead to use that Saturday slot. And on February 2nd, 2014, we started Success Stories uh, right there in their Saturday slot. So how long was the slot and how many people were in the program? It was it was an hour and a half long. It was from three to four thirty. And we on our first day, we had 36 people show up. And I remember I was really proud of that because, you know, that was just me and Charles. But our whole thing was that we were seeking out active young people. When I mean active, I mean still involved with gangs, still involved with drugs, still like in it, still in their mess. Like not because there's people in prison who've been in prison for 20 years who are old, old people who, you know, are not involved in anything. And of course, all kinds of people in between that don't fit in either of those groups. But we, we actively wanted to seek out people who are our age. At the time, me and Charles were 21. And we knew based on the research that we did that people um, who are 25 and under have the highest rates of recidivism and recidivism doesn't, it doesn't start to taper off until about 35. So those are the, that was the age group that we targeted. So just, we just went out one by one and just organized people to come in. I'm actually surprised that those are the statistics. I would logically think that the older you are, the more likely you are to to re-offend. Re um, you're saying that the no, I'm saying the younger you are, the more likely you are to re-offend. Right. Okay. So then so what, why is that? Well, I think that it has to do with like brain development. Like we know that people, specifically young men, brains are not developed, fully developed until 25. Um, but I also think it has to do with our system's current model of trying to coerce people into being docile rather than transform people and, and get and harness their best selves, their best energy or their true potential. So by the time people are older, they're just more docile. They're just, they're older. People are just more chill. Um, the people who are older, just on, on a psychological level, take less risks. So most people, like when I meet a, a lot of people doing the work in success stories and just being a, a feminist person who talks about feminism with cis men, you know, people who are 50 are just as patriarchal and toxic as people who are 20, um, but they might not go out of their way to go do something harmful just because they're tired, <laughs> as opposed to 20-year-olds, 22-year-olds, 23-year-olds who also want that um, patriarchal approval from other men might be willing to go shoot somebody for it. They might be willing to go rob somebody for it. So the 36 people that showed up the first day of your class, were they aware of what they were going to be discussing or was it 
um, were they under the impression that it was going to be Charles's um, relatives curricula that they were going to be exposed to? We, the way that we frame success stories and the way that we see our work is we're trying to help the participant be successful in what the participant wants to be successful in. We're not here to tell you how to be. We're here to help you get clear on what you want and do away with the things that are holding you back from accomplishing that. And within that, we understand that patriarchy is the primary impediment to our success. So, yeah, folks knew it was going to be a different curriculum by the simple fact that they had 21-year-olds walking up to them saying, hey, join this group. That was unheard of at the time. People of our age group were not participating in self-help culture, let alone leading it. And we were just clear, like, this is our thing. We didn't even mention that we were a subgroup of the other program. Um, I mean, maybe we should have, I've, uh, but we didn't. Um, we, we always framed it as this is our thing. Everybody in there is our age. Everybody got tattoos on their faces and stuff. Like, this is us. Like, we're trying to be successful. So people showed up. And then we started talking about, and it wasn't like a bait and switch. The whole com- The whole program is rooted in, you being successful in what you want to do, but we just have an, an, a whole uh, unit of the program talking about patriarchy because we understand that patriarchy is the primary impediment to our individual success. It seems that this conversation, whether you're talking with youth or adults, of defining what success is, is not something that we do as a society in general. Uh, so I'm wondering like, how difficult it was for the participants in your group to even identify something that was substantive beyond, let's say, fame or wealth. Yeah, I mean, success stories grew alongside our participants. So it took a, a while. It took a few years before we really had a curriculum that was anything like what what folks who saw the feminists on Subblock Y got to see. We were we opened up with what is your definition of success, and people just kind of answered. And it really, sometimes people gave great answers. Sometimes people said, I'm trying to have a lot of money. And, and we didn't, you know, really have a standard way of how to expand that. But by the time we were a couple years in, we had kind of um, reappropriated and, and edited this exercise um, from another program. And we called our version top five. And we basically have people list out the five most important people in their lives and the five goals they want to accomplish before they die. And then we have them whittle that down to a list of just five things, whether it be two of one, three of the other, or it doesn't matter, just five. Um, And that now we have a very clear definition of what we mean by success. Um, Success being the state of being where you're best serving these goals and these people. So what kind of response did you get when when the participants first were in these groups was there um was there resistance to the age of the facilitators was there resistance to the concept how do they respond to the idea of patriarchy and feminism um the age of facilitators was always an asset for us because our participants were our age as well um the response to the the conversations around patriarchy and feminism were exactly what you would expect them to be. It was turmoil. <laughs> it was a lot of pushback, a lot, a lot of pushback for years. Um, sometimes threats of violence. Um, 
it was it 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 got pretty uh it got pretty intense sometimes having those conversations. Do you mean threats during the class, during the group, or afterwards, like intimidation, mm-hmm. like don't do this anymore, this is bullshit? Not there was um not not like don't do this anymore, but I've had um during the facilitator training, I remember one of our facilitators like got in my face and was like trying to fight me because he kept he kept saying like well i can't you know we were talking about toxic masculinity and he was basically saying i can't not be that way because what if this happens what if somebody slaps me what if someone tries to take my stuff what if somebody calls me the b-word and i said bro you're living like a victim and in prison there's there's like a culture around the word victim where it's like you know the victim is the person who gets stabbed and wheeled away by the ambulance so you don't call someone a victim. Um, it's like a threat almost, especially for guys who've been in prison for a long time. It, it, it might not be seen that way so much anymore, but that that's the way he heard the word victim when I said that. He was like, I ain't never no victim. And he like got up in my face like we we're going to fight. And I'm like, bro, like I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. Like, so it was moments like that where it, it wasn't necessarily stop having those. There was definitely times where people are like, stop having those conversations like gang gang leaders and stuff like that trying to press up like stop teaching people that um you're like neutralizing you know my my you, obviously they're not going to say that but we were neutralizing their folks you know um the people who they they had under their thumb um there was that too but it it looked all types of ways so were people who were affiliated with gangs while they were in prison how does that I mean, this might sound naive, but how do they actually, how are they actually a part of that culture still if they're physically separated and how are they influenced by it? Is it through the fam, like the visitors, the family? No, because there's gangs in prison too. There, there are prison gangs. But they're different gangs than the ones that they were a part of. Kind of, but they're, they're attached though. They're without getting too much into it. Um, Basically, it's like depending on where you're from on the streets will depend how you act and what you do while you're in prison. I see. So basically, the allegiances carry um, through wherever they are and they it restricts them from having, let's say, relationships with people outside of their groups. Um, Sometimes, but it, it's all kinds of things. I mean, basically what it comes down to in California prisons is California prisons are segregated by race, not not at an official level, though there is definitely some complicity um, with with the CDCR as an agency. CDCR as an agency is compliant and benefits from it, and therefore doesn't do much to change it. But there is um, there at the at the cultural level within prisons, California prisons are segregated by race, and then again by like gang or area. Um, like what part of California you're from. And therefore, if two people of two different races are from two different parts of California get in a fight, it's not just between those two people. It's about everybody who shares their race and everybody who shares their part of California. So that's how prison riots happen. So if we're telling people, put your family or not your family, but the people who you love the most and your highest goals um, ahead of these expectations that you have to be violent in order to be a real man, we are now threatening that power structure. And there's people who benefit from that power structure in prison. So those are the kind of people who are not feeling what we were doing. What if the participant 
um, put into their top five categories their allegiance to their you know loyalty as as one of the goals how do you how do you um, negotiate that conversation we in um in all my years doing success stories we never had one person put allegiance to their gang in their top five wow that's amazing yeah it's that um <laughs> that just goes no, to show how dis- have, have we ha- we do have an entire because success stories is a weekly program so there was a whole week dedicated to talking about loyalty um because that as a value did come up for people that did keep people attached to negative things in their lives so we did have to talk about loyalty as a thing but i have never seen anybody put allegiance to a gang on their top five that that to me just goes to show how far removed young people become from their true goals and values when they end up in gangs. Um, so what, what was, how did you measure success for these programs? Was it by participation or engagement or how do you, how did you measure the shift in the mindset? I do want to say too, that every, all of our participants weren't necessarily in gangs. Um, I would actually say probably, uh, no, I can't attribute a number to it. Um, but we we had all kinds of people on success stories that weren't necessarily formally in, in any gang. But um, to answer your question, we did a, a exit survey. And every time we end, every time we graduated a, a success stories class, we had folks do an exit survey and we would take that feedback in as the, the leadership and um, use it to try to improve the program. And to see, like, if we're making a change um, in a non-official way, I could see the change being made simply from, you know, when we first started in 2014, by the time where they filmed the documentary in 2017, it was like night and day in terms of the way that we had, you know, people talking about patriarchy and toxic masculinity was just way different. The, the amount of buy-in that we had was, it was incomparable to when we first started because we had to go and like basically convince dudes one by one. First, I had to go get Charles on board, which was a process in and of itself because Charles is also very Christian. Then we had to like facilitator by facilitator, we had to get people on board. And it's still like it's it's a never ending, you know, like with any um, getting people to give up any uh, power that's attributed by systems of domination. Like it's, it's a never ending battle, like within myself to push against my own patriarchy and with each other. Like there's still things that come up with the success stories team that need to be addressed to this day. But the fact that we had a solid team of facilitators that were facilitating this material and bought into it is what really made me feel like we were getting somewhere. When I was able to leave there and know that the the feminism of the program was not going to be watered down or completely erased, I knew that we had come a long way. Was there any particular text um, or activity that really resonated that you that you saw shifted the participants? Say, say that one more time. Uh, was there any particular text or activity that they engaged in that really shifted them palpably oh, or visibly? Text. Um, yeah, what we realized, it wasn't text, though. Um, it what the big shift happened for us when we realized what was most effective was to model vulnerability and grow alongside our participants rather than teach them. 
because we tried everything under the book for the patriarchy unit of success stories. The patriarchy talking about patriarchy explicitly only takes up about a third of success stories curriculum. So that unit changed every time we did it. We did it different. First, we started out by reading passages of bell hooks and discussing them. Then we, um, I like did like a mini like patriarchy workshop similar to the one that I originally did. Uh, you know, before we even started success stories, that didn't that wasn't super successful. Then we started bringing in um, these college students who were at a, a local university who had a, a feminism student group there, and they led our 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 feminist uh, unit for like. I want to say like two, three seasons we brought in um, outside help. And, but it wasn't until after that um, we had one that went, I felt like it, you know, it went good, but a lot of folks didn't feel that way. Somebody on our, on our executive team, his name is Chris Johnston. He said, bro, you got to be up there. Like our participants can't relate with them. They're in college. They're, they've, they don't have our lived experience. You have to be the one to deliver this material. And I said, Chris, I tried that. Wasn't nobody trying to hear me. And he said, that's because you were teaching everybody rather than talking about how you struggle with this, which then opens other people up to the possibility that maybe they're struggling with it as well. And that's when we changed it to um, what folks see in the film, which is we would put up three, four different speakers to tell their personal stories, personal struggles that they've had with patriarchy. And we hit different parts. So we had one person go up there and talk about the objectification of women and how he would like um, date a lot of women or like try to have sex with a lot of women to like boost his own ego and look cool in front of his friends. Like use women as a like accessory, as a, as a fashion item for cool points. Another person go up there and talk about his struggles with violence and how um, his brother was killed and he, he was locked up with the dude who killed his brother and how he had to like grapple with the expectations placed upon him to, to, kill that dude and to find vengeance um and how he decided not to do that um all kind one person who was like muted his emotions by using drugs his whole life and um still struggles with being emotionally vulnerable to this day so we would put up these four speakers first then i would go up and do the workshop um that's seen in the film which was like very much rooted in our experience rather than let me teach you a bunch of concepts in a very academic way i mean we use the concepts um but we we always would like translate them into everyday language and everyday experience um and then we would break into small groups and talk about it once we switched over to that method the the model vulnerability and seek to relate seek to connect rather than seek to impress or critique that's when everything changed and that's when we really started finding success and people like transforming and before our very eyes since your release, you've established success stories as a nonprofit organization, partly with the support of your wife. How do you pronounce your name? Her name is Taina. Taina. Um, so what do you hope to achieve under this new entity? So I think it's important to say, though, I did um, do it with the support of Taina. I, I do everything I do is with the support of Taina. Um, we the, the, the primary players in establishing success stories as a nonprofit have actually been me and Chantal and who Chantal is. She, she volunteered with success stories literally from the beginning um, as our community liaison. So she, anything that had to, had to do with the outside world went through Chantal. She connected us with resources, with guest speakers. When we were bringing in 
um, those students from the college, they were, she was coordinating with them. So like Chantal was our really like the lifeblood of the program for completely for free for over five years. Um, but she also in her day job was a associate executive director of a national organization and then an executive director of a local organization in Washington, DC. So, um, she is now our executive director for success stories and has really been doing like the hard day-to-day work of like turning this program into an organization, a nonprofit organization. And what that's looked like is first we applied for the grant, which Taina told us about where CDCR, um, the California prison have a grant where they say, if you have had a successful program in a California prison before, we will fund you to expand it into more prisons. So we applied and we got it. Um, and they funded us to go into three more prisons, partially. Um, they, they're not covering all that it will take to get into those three other prisons. So then we needed to start fundraising to get the rest, which means we had to, you know, file for all, all the government stuff in order to be official nonprofit and receive donations. So that's what we're working on. And um, we begin in those three new prisons on J- June 1st. We're moving into the the Cook County Jail in Chicago, um, hopefully in July. We're in those talks now, and we're in talks to move into prisons in South Carolina uh, sometime in the fall. Wow, that's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. How are you able to have enough people to train as skilled facilitators to do this work? Because obviously you haven't you're not you haven't physically been in any of these other facilities outside of California so what what does that kind of work look like so success stories model is is like because of that moment um that I talked about earlier with Chris Johnson what we really do is it it only works if the people who are leading the work are are the people who are receiving the work um th- any kind of power dynamic ruins it so what we do is we train facilitators at the facilities to lead the work the same way we did in success stories, um, success stories at, at CTF. So what our business model looks like is I train what we call coaches to go into the prisons. And then those coaches then train and supervise a team of facilitators who are incarcerated at those prisons to lead the work. Um, that way we don't have to do a whole bunch of hiring or, or be in a thousand places at once. We have two coaches, one right now, one coach, soon to be two coaches in California who are handling, um, our sites here. I'm going to train a coach in Chicago who will, uh, lead the work there, train the facilitators there at the Cook County jail, and they'll do that work there. And I'll train a coach in South Carolina. And that way it really is, it it doesn't have to be a huge team on the outside. The big team is happening on the inside. Um, And that's whose leadership we're really investing in is training those facilitators on the inside to do this work. So the facilitators, the ones who are on the inside, have you gotten a sense as to whether there's a demand for people to want to step up and take on those roles? Are they getting anything out of it? Are they getting points or... um, are they getting compensated? Is that something that's even possible? It's in California. It's, we can't pay them legally. Um, while you're in prison in California, you're not allowed to be paid um, or engage in any business practices. Um, but what in, the way it works in California is 
you earn time off of your sentence, given that you have a release date, you earn time off your sentence um, for every hour you spend in a self-help group. And for being facilitators, they basically have a guaranteed slot in a self-help group for the long term. So by being our facilitators, they are they're earning time off. I see. And what what are you um, is there some process in place to measure recidivism beyond the near term so that you can actually go back and hopefully expand this to more states across the country? We're looking at ways to develop um, surveying practices so that we can have official scientifically recognized evidence that success stories is beneficial and is lowering recidivism. But also just as somebody who was in prison, I understand that one program in and of itself to say that, like, I went to this program and therefore my life changed and I'll never go back to prison, I, I think is a short-sighted way of measuring effectiveness. It's really the culture of the entire, like, the, the culture and the context created in the facility by there being a lot of programs. Because success stories only happens once a week for two hours a week. Um, a lot can happen there, but you're not going to change your whole life, you know, two hours a week, once a week for 12 weeks. Um, but when you have facilities that are filled with tons of programs and, and the culture of the facilities is we go to programs here, we work on ourselves, that's what we do. We want to go home. We want to be better people. That's how you really get lasting change. So success stories, what, the way I see it is we are just adding that vital conversation that I feel like all men need to have, that all people need to have, but cis men in particular, of, around challenging patriarchy. Um, but we're just one conversation that needs to be had. And, and that's why there needs to be a plethora of programs at all of these facilities that are having all the other necessary conversations. But we just feel like we're best positioned to have this one. Do you think that your curricula could be used in other spaces and other educational spaces to uh, engage in preventive work? Yeah, we we've began talks. I mean, because the, the documentary came out, we've got a lot of visibility. So we have people contacting us from all kinds of spaces um, that want to bring us into their space. Um, high schools, uh, juvenile halls, um, yeah, middle schools, all kinds of spaces. And we're in talks of bringing success stories to those spaces, to multi-gendered spaces. Um, that That is in our future. Right now we're like focusing on what we have to be the most developed. Um, which is how to have these conversations in men's prisons. But we are also developing curriculum for multi-gendered spaces, which is going to be, you know, we're, we're, we're bringing in outside help. We need multi-gendered leadership to, in order to, to do that as well. Um, so that is down the road. I'm glad to hear that because I think there's a, a great opportunity um, and a great need for us to be having these conversations around power and privilege uh, as soon as basically children have the capacity to have these conversations um, as they negotiate, you know, those power dynamics, even in the playground. Absolutely. So you referenced your wife as being someone who has been a pivotal support in your journey. Can you talk about the role that Taina has played in your own transformation? Yeah, I mean, Taina has been everything. Taina is my ultimate accountability partner. Um, she's not the type of person to like hold her tongue or when she's, you know, uncomfortable, not say something. Taina has held me accountable in very upfront, clear, transparent, 
unapologetic ways from the moment that I met her um, almost eight years ago. So Taina really challenged me to be my highest self throughout um, our entire relationship together, but specifically once I was incarcerated. And she also was one of, you know, my my primary supporters. Taina was sending me the literature before uh, we were able to get Chantal um, Taina was helping us develop the curriculum and, and sending us literature for that. Um, she, because of the organization her and I started together, which is a policy organization um, called Initiate Justice, she had years of experience doing nonprofit work um, in this space before I got out. So she's been really a leader that I can follow and learn from as now I'm developing success stories as an organization. She's just been key at, at every turn. Um, she's added value to the development of, of success stories and to myself as a person. Would you, in one interview, you said, quote, I always knew I would go to jail, unquote. So looking back, um, is there anything you think that could have resonated with you to prevent you from having that thought and belief? Had you been exposed earlier to these concepts? to interrogating the tools to interrogate patriarchy, do you think that would have made a difference? Um, you know, if I'm being all the way honest, I think that just speaking for myself, no, because I was introduced to those tools when I was 14 years old and I still went back into full-fledged street life at 16 years old um, because we don't have a context we don't have the culture that supports men who are trying to challenge patriarchy. So you can learn about it and be clear in it. But if there's not a whole, if there's not a place for myself, there is no place for me to be like that and still feel a part of. I didn't want to stand out in, in a countercultural way at that level, at that age. You know, as a teenager, I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be one of. And there wasn't a, a place for me to fit in and be one of challenging the, the dominant culture, which was telling me to be violent and emotionless and objectifying. So, I, I mean, I was introduced to these concepts when I was very young, but there was nowhere for me to go with them that was prominent enough for me to feel comfortable there. There was like the, the my friends in the movement, they were in the organizing community of Los Angeles. But ultimately, that whole time I was organizing, I was still worried about what my friends that were in the gang community of Los Angeles, what were they thinking of me? Because that way of being male has more investment in this culture. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, we all as a culture need to do the hard work of challenging patriarchy so that there is a space for people to go besides patriarchy. I think it's deeper than just like raising a feminist boy. That feminist boy is going to step outside and the whole world's going to tell him he's wrong. And what can we really put in him to go against the whole world? Well, if everyone does it, if we all raise feminist children, then we all have the tools to engage in developing our true and best selves. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that, that's, I, I agree with you 100%. Before our interview, I had shared with you some of the ways in which alternatives to incarceration and um, some of the policies uh, in criminal justice reform efforts have crept into the domestic violence arena, which is very close to my heart. And one of these is 
the ways in which, for example, restorative justice is being used in domestic violence in your in your um, initiate justice website. There's a lot of information on the work that you and Taina did on Proposition 57, and um, and then finally, there's uh, an example that I was just um, just became aware of recently around how bail reform and the bail project, um, you know, indirectly led to the release of someone um, who was a domestic violence offender, but accused of a um, misdemeanor assault charge who then was released and went on to fatally assault his domestic partner. So these are all some examples of the potential consequences of not taking a nuanced approach towards criminal justice reform and its impact specifically on domestic violence victims. Um, And I just, prior to our conversation, someone sent me an article about domestic violence victims um, facing higher risk of being attacked following Cook County reform. So it was interesting that you're going to be going into Cook County as well. I'll definitely send you the article. I think for those of us who are working in this space of advocating to end violence against women, we know that there is very little enforcement um, convictions or enforcement of the existing domestic violence laws to begin with. So I just wanted to get your sense of what your thoughts are with regard to how we might be able to ensure that the reforms that we both support are actually going to be um, taking into account the safety of survivors and still enforce accountability. Yeah, I think I, I appreciate the the nuance of this conversation. There's, I think it's important to say that our our current criminal legal system does is not well designed to keep survivors safe or to deal with um, domestic abuse as a thing because it is all about determining guilt and seeking revenge based on a specific one-time incident, right? So our whole court system is about something happened, let's prove if you're innocent or guilty, to what extent you're guilty, and then therefore based on what extent you're guilty, that, that will determine how long we can legally emotionally torture you. That is a patriarchal system in and of itself. The whole idea of revenge as power or vengeance as power or domination as power is a patriarchal idea. And that's the idea from which our criminal legal system was born. And therefore, it's inherently patriarchal and is just terrible at serving um, survivors of domestic abuse, which you know much better than I is not something that just happens one time that we can. It's not a one off incident that we can determine guilt for and then therefore seek revenge on somebody and it's going to magically make them no longer be that way. With that being said, I feel like because these larger or these larger institutions, uh, cities, state governments and, and the like are finally starting to understand that our criminal legal system is, is ineffective um, and abusive, they are now. I think people will will often say, well, if we don't have prisons, then what else? What should we do? 
And a quick and easy answer that a lot of people say without even really knowing what they're talking about sometimes is they say, well, we need restorative justice. One of the articles um, that that you sent me had had said uh, something to the effect of like, people like the term restorative justice because it has two terms that they like by themselves. Restore, people like restoration, justice, people like justice. So people say we need restorative justice, but a lot of people don't know what restorative justice actually is. It's actually a very specific practice that usually involves some kind of conversation uh, between uh, somebody who's done harm, somebody who's received that harm, and with the hopes of like reconciliation and healing. That conversation can't happen with if the person who's doing harm is still doing the harm or intends to still do the harm. So restorative justice falls short of being able, in, in that very specific way, um, falls short of being able to solve uh, domestic violence problems. With that being said, so does the crim- the criminal justice system as it currently stands, right? Um, so I don't. Neither of those things are a solution that I would advocate for for how to deal with um, domestic violence. One of the um, policy uh, changes that has taken place in some parts of the world to address the inadequacies of the criminal justice system and how it defines domestic violence uh, or intimate partner violence is the criminalization of coercive control. So that's happened in Europe, in England, and Scotland. And there are efforts within this country um, to also make that happen. And the idea would be that the whole context of the relationship, um, if someone is brought you know, to, into the criminal justice system because of one act, and let's say it's the survivor who engaged in self-defense, the whole context of that person's history with, in that case, the abuser, but the person that she has harmed, according to the criminal justice system, would be taken into account and the power dynamics would be taken into account. And as Evan Stark said, who, who's written a book about this, um, the whole constellation of harm would be taken into account. And um, therefore, there would be, in theory, a greater likelihood that justice can be served and that the right person who has done harm can be held to account. What are your your thoughts about that, criminalizing coercive control? I understand. I, I haven't read the book by, by Evan Stark, unfortunately, so I can only answer with what I do know. Um, I'd certainly agree that within the current system, there lacks that contextualizing of, of individual acts of violence, right? So if somebody is being accused and threatened with incarceration um, for, for defending themselves against an abuser, it's very important that the entire context of that relationship is brought up and that that person, that survivor, is not further victimized now by the state for defending themselves. Um, with that being said, I don't support the criminalization of anything. Um, I don't think that criminalization is a solutions-based way of dealing with harm. So your approach is basically through prevention and education by changing the culture. I think that, yes, I I would say that that is true. Um, But that doesn't do anything for, or that does little for the person whose life is being threatened right now, like as we speak in this moment, right? Mm -hmm. So because... 
the criminal legal system as it currently exists, retributive justice, and then restorative justice, like sitting down in these kind of healing circle kinds of conversations aren't our only options. Um, I think it's important for us to look at the the, the full plethora of options. Um, and I'll, I'll name the one that I, makes the most sense for me that I actually feel like would be the most helpful in this case. It is true that I believe sometimes people are so committed to being harmful um, that they're not going to stop in the near future. And therefore, for the safety of others, they need to be removed or put in, in such a position that they cannot continue to harm people. That is very different from the system that we have today. The, the purpose of our system today is revenge. I mean, it's, you know, under the euphemism of punishment, but it's revenge. You did something wrong. I proved you did something wrong. Now I'm going to hurt you, um, whether it be financially, emotionally, psychologically, sometimes physically, um, sometimes sexually. That is how our current system works. With the purpose being revenge, that's what that's what differentiates it from what I'm talking about now. If we divested from the revenge-based system, then we would have so much more resource to deal with the people who actually need to be separated. In my seven years in, in prison, I've met thousands, tens of thousands of people. Out of all those people, I, I could probably think of eight that I felt unsafe around or that I felt like this person is committed to being this way and it's not circumstantial it's not something that they're going to change anytime soon and it was often because of mental health reasons but it's not only that it, it's the addiction to power control the connections that that has to do with people's early trauma and like sense of self-worth and i i need to get my self-worth off controlling this other person cultural context of patriarchy it's so many things that lead people to being that way specifically the people we're talking about right now like abusers and in, in ipv and we would have more resource to really address those issues that folks have in a safe setting and in a setting that, that removes them from having the ability to continue harm or coercive control over um, their survivors. If we did not spend billions of dollars a year uh, using prison as a catch-all and in a revenge system for every time somebody breaks the law. So can you just maybe elaborate on what you mean by separating them and what kind of interventions you'd ideally want to offer them? Yeah. Again, like with, with the context of not having a system that's based on revenge, if we had a system that was literally the only goal is to stop harm and to prevent harm in the future, we could, when necessary, remove somebody, even by force, if necessary, from the community, bring them to a place that is then there for no other purpose but to support their transformation to what extent they're willing. And if they have no interest in transformation, then they would stay in that place until they did. Um, because the unfortunate truth is that if the negative thing, if the negative things that we're doing in our lives are working for us, we're less likely to change them. So it usually does take some discomfort for people to want to change. So yeah, there will be, I do believe I, I'm as somebody who is a prison abolitionist, I still believe that some people need to be removed from or, or have their access to other people ceased in order for them to truly transform. 
The difference between what I'm describing in prison is the goal of what I'm saying is transformation rather than it being retribution and the legislature or a judge coming up with some arbitrary number of you did this, so you get eight years or you did this, so you get 10 years, you did this, you get 20. It's not about that. It's you are the, the course of control that you're wielding over people in our community is harmful. It's lethal. We can't allow you to do it. If you're not going to stop on your own, we need to bring you to a place where you can work on why you're acting that way while these folks, these survivors can still be safe. How do you feel when survivors don't acknowledge or recognize the potential risk that they're in when they're still in relationships or still uh, exposed to their partners and voluntarily want to keep these individuals that you may want to put aside in society if they want them to still remain in the community? That's, that's hard, right? Do we then intervene? I, I think, let me back up a little bit. Something that, that three uh, prison abolitionists that I look up to very much all talk about, uh, Angela Davis, Patrice Cullors, Charlene Carruthers, all talk about in eliminating prisons. It's, it's not just about getting rid of prisons. It's about building healthy communities where we're accountable to each other. So I, I just want to say that everything I'm saying is within that context. We can't do one without the other. So now to more directly answer your question. If we have communities that are directly accountable to another, we as a community might need to step in and remove a person for the, the safety of someone in our community. What that looks like right now in present time is usually just amongst family. You know, the way that, that we've kind of been colonized with Western culture is we don't see community as legitimate, bigger than the nuclear family or, you know, extended family. But we're, it's, it's not unheard of for families to step in and be like, we're, we're here to get you. I mean, this just recently happened uh, with a, a loved one of mine. She was in a, an, an abusive relationship. She was being abused and coercively controlled by a man. And her mom went and got her. Her mom flew across the country, went to her doorstep and said, get in the car. We're leaving. And that is uh, something that communities do for each other all the time. And I think that that's what we're going as we build stronger communities. It didn't just have to be her mom. Maybe in, a, in, in the world I'm describing, her mom wouldn't have had to fl fly across the country because her neighbor would have been close enough to her to know something was going on and to go next door and say, we're leaving. Or all of her neighbors could have shown up, intervened between her and the man and said, dude, you're leaving. You're not welcome here anymore. Like we could set up new systems that look, um, you know, in some ways they look nothing like what we have now. But in some ways they look like exactly what we have now. Just us caring about e each other enough to intervene in, in stern ways. We're going to have to need training from from you, Richie. <laughs> About how how to to um, help people learn how to be upstanders because there's too many people who don't act out of fear part partly. Um, I don't. <laughs> that's very nice. I don't. There 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 are organizations um, that are giving that kind of training. Um, Project Nia in New York is doing great work around this, um, specifically around IPV and sexual violence as well. They just had a national conference in New York City um, where they brought in restorative justice and transformative justice practitioners and organizations from all over the country to have these conversations. Um, Success Stories was represented there by our uh, Los Angeles coach, Ronnie. Um, there's just there's a lot of good work that are, you know, we're uncovering new ways to uphold justice every day. Um, 
but we should really look to those organizations, you know, not just success stories of Project NIA, but all the organizations all over the country, look to them for leadership on how to show up for one another and how our communities can hold each other accountable rather than relying on the state apparatus, which honestly has other motive motivators like money and vote. Well, that's a great segue into our engendered questionnaire, a set of questions that I ask each of our guests that I've adapted from James Lipton's Inside the Actors Studio. The first question is, what is at stake in this struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? What is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression is literally, and I cannot overstate this, and I'm not being hyperbolic, it is literally the future of the success of human beings. To say that gender-based problem, gender-based violence is only the problem of women is to ignore the facts that show that the more fair a society is, the more it flourishes. That the more oppressed women are in a society is the the more that that uh, society struggles. We are destroying not only um, women and GNC folks and trans folks, but we are literally destroying the hearts and spirits of every person on the planet by being obsessed with male dominance and control rather than mutual collaboration. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is I really feel like we're winning. I really do. I did a workshop with my friend Amreen. She is an amazing facilitator. She brought me in to to co-facilitate a workshop that she was doing about feminist allyship at a fraternity house at the University of Southern California at USC right here in South Central LA. And I went in there expecting it to be very combative. And it wasn't. These 18, 19, 20 year old young men were showing up problematic at times, whatever. They were raised in this culture too, but they were down. They were, they were there. They were open. They were the most feminist group of young men I've ever met. And I was very, I felt very hopeful that day that this culture is changing. And finally, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence? I think that the first thing that we need to do to stop gender-based violence is detach ourselves from this um, obsession with the idea that domination is power. We can't watch sports that say domination is power, watch movies that say domination is power, listen to music that say domination is power, um, teach men that domination is power, and then when they exercise domination to achieve that power, say, hold on, you're, you're doing it wrong, now, now you got to go to jail, now you're a bad person. Our entire culture is obsessed with male violence, obsessed with the idea that domination is power from our criminal justice system all the way to the way that we teach little kids how to play with one another in preschool. When we interrupt this narrative that domination is power and replace it with the narrative that collaboration is power, we will end gender violence and I believe all violence. It's been such a pleasure, Richie, talking to you. I really applaud the work you're doing, and I look forward to hearing more about your future success stories and hopefully also collaborating with you. Thank you so much. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for for having me on here and having these important conversations. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. 
The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.